always depended on the kindness of strangers. All right, so he's not a regular rat, or, or even a super rat. He's a scared little mouse, that's all. Welcome to The Real Woman, a podcast about all things cinematic. I'm your host, Emmanuel Perryman. My guests today are documentary filmmakers Rick Minnick and Matt Sweetwood. This interview was conducted earlier this summer in Potsdam, Germany, where they are currently editing their most recent documentary film, The Straight Guys. The Straight Guys tells the story about a group of Americans and Russians who are trying to connect our two countries via a train tunnel beneath the Bering Strait. Uh, Gentlemen, would you just tell me a little bit about yourselves, your background, and how you came into uh, documentary filmmaking? Why don't you start, Rick? Okay, well, hi, I'm Rick. Um... Let's see, I had no plans to become a documentary filmmaker. Uh, when I was growing up, I thought I'd become a newspaper journalist, and that was my big dream when I was in high school, and I worked for our local newspaper. But then when I got to college, I was in New York City, and I started going to the art house cinemas after classes and just fell in love with especially European cinema and like older cinema, French New Wave and the Italian neorealists, and I decided I want to become a filmmaker. It took a while until it actually happened, but... I spent a semester abroad in Vienna and really fell in love with Europe. So after I graduated from college, I moved to Europe and ended up in Berlin. And that was back in 1990, and I've been here ever since. I went to film school here, and yeah, that's kind of how it got started. My story is slightly different. I grew up uh, extremely bored in the Midwest, and when I discovered my dad's video camera that he actually bought to film his golf swing we realized we could make cool movies with that (laughs) so I was always getting in trouble for that Um, so for me filmmaking has always been something forbidden because uh, if he found out we took the camera through the woods and did Indiana Jones movies with my little brothers that would have been uh, hell to pay but I was too stupid to realize that eventually he was going to see the films and they were going to like figure it out but to make a long story short, I mean, um, well, in the Midwest, there's not that many great film schools. So I, we, like, my aunt told me, why don't you move out to California? My um, family on the West Coast, and I ended up getting into the San Diego State's film department and went to school there uh, to learn basically, you know, how to make a living out of it. Although, even until I was in, in my, you know, early 20s, I didn't realize you could actually make movie money doing this um but eventually when i met my german wife i came to berlin and started doing less fiction stuff and getting more into documentaries maybe i i I, you know while writing stories you're always looking for you know stories about people and so on and so forth and i'm like you know instead of it wow this would make a great movie why not just make the movie about the real people and i kind of got into documentaries where i also met rick here and working on his first film together, Homemade Hillbilly Jam, that was about, you know, the musical, you know, uh, story of the, the hillbilly music in the Midwest where I'm from. So actually a lot of that film was shot in the, 
you know, where I, where I grew up. So that kind of, that kind of area. Almost came full circle. So it was coming full circle. <laughs> you got it. Yeah. But now I do documentaries as well, but, uh, yeah. Matt's being modest. He really saved that film because it was, it's a very American film. And I tried to That's edit true. it. I came back here and tried to edit it with two different German editors and they just didn't get it. Was that somehow. your film school? After film school. Project. That was after film school. Yeah. That was my first film after film school. And Matt and his family just moved back from the States. They went back. They moved there for a few years. And then they had just come back here. And I asked Matt if he could help out. Just help me go through it like, and figure out the storyline and stuff. And then the that was when all the digital editing started happening. Like in no, the that was shot on 60 millimeters. Shot, yeah, it was shot on Super 16. But we were editing it digitally. And... Then we, at some point we're just like, well, we had it all on paper, like a paper cut, and they were like, well, let's just try throwing it together real quick to see if it works, and then before we knew it, Matt was editing the film, and so what and, year is this? Uh, that came out in two thousand five. Okay. Okay. So wow, that man. was our first. I I like to think that Matt was a guy who he picked a good time to move back to Germany <laughs> and, to work on my film, and. He saved it, and then we started traveling around the U.S. We were, had a few different festivals that it was playing at, and while we were doing that, we started shooting the next film. And is that available now? You can watch Homemade Hillbilly Jam if you if you. Uh, it's on, I thought it was on. Uh, it's on Amazon. Amazon and Air. It's like it's like that. on all the digital platforms. It's, it's resurfaced. Uh, this is interesting to filmmakers out there. I think what was interesting to me, or what I forget about now, is there was only eleven hours worth of footage. That you had shot. Of course, that was all in sixteen millimeter. Nowadays, and the finished you got film is le- you got what hundred <laughs> hours easily yeah. the average. Yeah. Uh, I'm so at home. As, <laughs> right. So as an editor, um, when you look at a lot, you know, how do you tell the story? And you know, that's that's kind of refreshing. And and on one side, to, to sort of deal with the footage that you have, but also. Um, how when you shoot on on film, it does you have a different focus, you know, different concentration. For okay, this is going to cost me a lot of money when I mm-hmm. pull the trigger. It's like putting gas in my car. <laughs> it's like <laughs> you hear the thing going in. Nowadays, everyone's shooting the right, right. bleep out of everything. <laughs> no. Me too. I mean, I'm not like saying I don't overshoot, you, but that was so you did that movie, and then you've actually done some other documentaries on your own. Yeah, yeah I've I've shot a few. The documentary I'm probably most known for nowadays is called Beerland. It's about my journey through uh, my new homeland of Germany through the eyes of a, of a beer glass. Kind of, you know, why is this so typical, you know, German? And, you know, if I'm going to live here and stay here, actually I have been here for, you know, over 20 years now. And it's, it's you know, maybe I'll get to ger- know the German culture better <laughs> through their beer culture. Which, surprisingly, they don't know that much of, or about their own beer culture, although they're super proud of it. You know, right, so it's right. beer, and you know, we have our beer and stuff. But it's like, well, why? And so, and then I kind of that film, you know, opened some other doors and and so on and so forth. Yeah, but I've I've done other documentaries. You can Google mattsweetwood.com and check them out. Okay, I, they're not all for sale either. I don't I don't <laughs> but some, but give away everything. Some yeah, there are there are some. Yeah. And then you did some others on your own. Yeah, so so homemade hillbilly jam. Just we were on that tour in the U.S. Okay. and then we started shooting film that became Forgetting Dad, which is about my father's mysterious case of amnesia. He had a, his car was rear-ended when he's pulling into a shopping center in, in Sacramento, California in 1990, and a week later he woke up and didn't know who he was and who his family was or anything. And 
it was about 16 years later that Matt and I started making this film about about what happened. And we were trying to, the, the doctor said back then that he should recover his memory in about two to three years, and it never happened. So the question was, so why did his memory not come back? That was the, the, the question throughout the film. And that was a new type of filmmaking for me because it was my first digital film. Uh, we, we just were touring with one film, but we brought, back then it was HDV that we started the film on. We brought this HDV camera and some sound equipment with us and a little bit of, and some lights. And we just started filming with members of my family and their stories about their perspectives on what happened. And we just started making a film and it wasn't funded at that point or maybe we had a little bit of money. Uh, eventually, German Television commissioned the film, or co-produced the film with us, and, and then it had a theatrical release in Germany, the film, and went on to festivals and stuff. But it was kind of liberating because we were just able to start mm -hmm. and work in a different way. And um, HD, the rest of it was shot on HD cam, so it was like it was a up to then video had always been this kind of crappy quality. I didn't, yeah. I didn't want to work in video and stuck to film as long as possible, and then. When we were shooting for Getting Dad, it's like, well, this looks pretty good. And, and now, like 10 years later, it's like, HD, man, it doesn't look good enough. So now we're working in 4K. It's like it's always developing yeah. further and I further. Think, I think the real, for me, the challenge or what was interesting about doing the Forgetting Dad film of us, you know, both living now here in Germany, um, we have a similar story. But going back to the States, going back to show maybe like a, the dark side of a family story about, you know, why did he tell everyone a different story and piecing together this this real mystery. I mean, the film is a mystery. I don't want to, no spoilers, but I mean, you should just watch it for A, the, the you know, asking yourself, you know, how do I deal with someone in my family who's hard to deal with, but this is on a, a whole different level when he claims you know he doesn't know anyone but then there are aspects where you question that and you start putting that that in in, in question i think as as young filmmakers okay we're dealing with the format and the the technical side but just like how do you tell that story when it's unfolding before your eyes and you know as the camera we co-directed it i also filmed the interviews and holding the camera on people and just letting you know it was a catharsis they were starting to tell their whole you know, life story, but also what happened and, and, you know, things they'd never talked about before. So the camera can really trigger a lot of things. In it's people. hard to lie in front of the camera. It's hard, well, yeah, but it's also hard to, I mean, once you, once you start, you know, once you get, you know, trigger someone with the right question, right, and then they start, right. they start unloading their whole, you know, yeah. you have to be prepared on the receiving end of that, right, mm -hmm. to mm -hmm. be able to know when to keep filming, to stop filming, what to do with the footage, so on and so forth. I mean, I don't know how they teach that in, in film school when you get out there because every story is different. I mean, they right. teach you how to manage all your equipment what, and so on and so forth. And kind of they give you, you know, a little bit of a skill set of like, yeah. okay, go now go for it. But I'm not always sure. Um, that's part of, for me, the, the challenge and the fun, the, the what inspires me to keep, keep doing this because... Um, yeah, you have to kind of go in there and, and, you know, do the hard work of taking the footage yeah. home, but also dealing with the people while you're filming it. And, and was it a conscious choice for him to do the filming and to you to, to do the interviews? I mean, I imagine if it's your family. Well, we, 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 mixed, the, we mixed things up when we started off as a two-man crew where Matt was doing camera and I was doing sound. 
and I was asking most of the questions, but Matt would pop in a, he would pop out some questions too. Often I would would overlook asking the obvious questions because they're my family members. I already know the stuff, but right. Matt's like, yeah, people who are watching this film won't know that. So Matt often asked questions that I just forgot to, uh, to ask. And that was actually quite interesting what Matt was just saying about you have to be on the, when you're on the receiving end of, mm -hmm. of getting answers. Um, I was not, I was like in my late 30s when we, mid to late 30s when we started making the film and I thought, you know, I'm growing up, I have kids of my own, this isn't going to be so hard, you know, mm -hmm. I'm, but emotionally I was not at all prepared for what was going to happen and if Matt had not been there, um, I don't, yeah, the film definitely wouldn't exist because <laughs> it was really um, emotionally difficult. It was emotionally difficult and learning new things, processing it on the spot, mm -hmm. dealing and with your family. I guess if it wasn't your own family, yeah. I mean, the yeah. fact that it's his family, his sister, his cousin, there are a lot of tears, a lot of discoveries that were unpleasant and so on and so forth. And then I had to kind of drive everybody home at the right. end. <laughs> That's a good way. Pull the, pull the. Yeah, I was a designated driver on that yeah, film yeah, for yeah. sure. No, but I mean, I, it's been it's been uh, you know challenging in that sense, but you know challenging sort of in a good way of like you know I think this story needs to get told. How are we going to do it? So on right. and so forth. That's right. different than if someone gives you a film. Go make a film about you know right. this or go make a film. I don't know what inspires. Everyone has a different inspiration, but. There are a lot of similarities in that, you know, trying to do something that's that's never been told before, never been shot before. At least that's the way it is for me. I yeah. tend to gravitate toward those types of stories. So after Forgetting Dad, you, did you do another one together or did you go separate ways? We kind of went separate ways in, in the sense that I got some... I mean, we had worked a long time on that project. I was even considering taking just like also a break in general and you know already start writing my autobiography at that point <laughs> at like 40 you don't do that but I mean it's sort but uh then I realized okay there's a lot of projects I don't know how I'd stumbled into um the, beer the beer land the beer land was it was a project that I wanted to maybe because the subject matter was a lot more funny I mm -hmm. thought that documentaries tended to be overly serious I not because yeah I think that's great but I mean for me, I also think, you know, life is, is sometimes funny and weird and interesting. Yeah. It's not always, you know, the world's a bad, horrible place. We should all just, <laughs> you know, go home and shoot ourselves because right. it's not going to get any better, right. period. Right. Right. I think it's also our job to show that people, you know, can be funny and inspiring. And that was what inspired me to do Beerland. But um, that was also a German co-production with uh, Bayerischer Rundfunk, which is a German television station. And the way that it was produced and stuff. I mean, I think that Rick, I, I know that you were doing different projects too, but I think that um, it, it just was, it was kind of a, a different direction altogether. And, and after that, then just how it goes, you get busy with, with doing other projects. I shot a film or did a, direct, edited a film about German hackers. That was kind of interesting. Someone said, hey, can you edit my film? I edited another film called The Love of Books, which was in London. A Channel Four production actually won the Gerson Trust doc Best Documentary Award about the saving these books in Sarajevo during the war. These oh, rare man. documents, uh, never uh, translated or photocopied, um, rare Arabic uh, manuscripts. Manuscripts is the, is the word, and also 
how they risk their lives to do that. So there's some reenactments and and um, and it was it was cool 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 project and 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 that filmmaker by the way has a new film out called uh, Kleptocrats. You can watch it on Stars Network. Sam Hopkinson, but unfortunately I didn't edit his his recent film. But anyways, uh, enough about that. I think uh, Rick and I finally. I tried over the years to, uh, different th uh, to work on different projects. This one happened to to work out because the new project, the Straight Guys, yes. is uh, you know it's back in our home country <laughs> for the most, <laughs> most part. Part of it's in Russia. And and tell it, tell me a little bit about like, the background. How did you get into this movie? I mean, it's how did you even hear about this project? Well, you got to ask Rick. All right. <laughs> well, so the Straight Guys is about this essentially about this guy, George Kumal. He was uh, immigrated from, the che from Czechoslovakia to the U.S. in 1969. He was a mining engineer who had this big dream of building a tunnel from Alaska across the Bering Strait to Russia, which is 50 miles across. And most people don't realize that the U.S. and Russia are actually neighbors, that it's so far away and so far north you just don't think about it. And usually if you look at a map, Alaska's at the far left and Russia's right. at the far right and you don't see that they almost connect. But I How um, many miles? Fifty miles across. 50 miles. Yeah. That's right. So I'd always been fasc by, fascinated by the story and I researched who this George Kumal guy was and found that he lives in Tucson, Arizona and I looked him up in the phone book and called him and he was very happy that someone was interested <laughs> in his story and that was in two thousand ten. And now at nine years later, um, well eight years later we shot the main part of the film and now we're editing it and so and so where did you go did you you didn't did you go to Siberia did we went to the Bering Strait last okay. summer uh, summer of 2018 with George and another guy Scott Spencer who's a transportation consultant from Delaware they uh, he's much younger so George is 76 no 78 and Scott's 59 and they both share the passion for this, making this connection, connecting the world. And what's so the we took this journey goal? with him. The ultimate goal is to build a train tunnel beneath the Bering Strait. It would be the world's longest tunnel, twice as long as the English Channel Tunnel. Okay. And it would be to build a freight connection, a freight train connection between Asia and North America. So this wouldn't be passengers? Okay. Uh, there would be some passenger trains too, but mostly freight. And they say, the proponents say that it would be about a week faster to ship goods from China to the U.S. than by ship. And it would be an electric railroad, all powered by renewable energy. So it would be much cleaner. Mm -hmm. These cargo ships are really filthy. and um, So that's basically... So this would connect the U.S., Russia, and China. China, and then Canada. it would go all the way over to to Europe, and then you could go down into Africa. It, the I, entire world would be connected yeah, that's by That's the rail. interesting uh, twist on the story is that it would be a Russian-American co-production, or it could be international peace project is what they call it. It's mm -hmm. been around since Abraham Lincoln's days, the idea to connect the two continents, and why has it never been done? But I think what you're really watching is the story of uh, George Kamal, you know, an elderly dreamer who's now maybe having to deal with the fact that it might not be done in his lifetime and how he passes on this mm -hmm. dream to the younger <laughs> generation. But I mean, for, you know, for the audience, you know, I know you, you can learn a lot about this project and, and, and whether or not it's interesting to you, but I think when you're watching 
you know, asking yourself or reevaluating your own dream and the challenges and obstacles mm-hmm. you, you face, uh, you know, are you really willing to go that far for it? And what happens, right. you know, and so it kind of takes you down his journey. I mean, in a lot of ways, it's a, it's a much quieter film. It's less controversial or at least, uh, you know, shocking in, in that way than you know, Forgetting Dad, which is, uh, you know, you're dealing about a, you know, case of amnesia and, and how that affects the family. So it's more pulls on those emotional strings, whereas this is more, you know, you think about topics of, you know, international you know, peace and prosperity at the, ha- in the hands of uh, a dreamer who right. no one really wants to do this project, to be honest, and that's the problem with it, is that every time it just never seems to go all the way. So He finds supporters, but they're not the decision makers who can make it happen. Right. Like we filmed in Nome, Alaska, which is the largest city on the west coast of Alaska, and uh, the mayor is a former Broadway entertainer, and he, he's a wonderful supporting character in the film. He loves it, he's, he's all for it, but he can't alone make it happen. Ultimately, it will come down to the presidents of US, the U.S. and Russia making an agreement about it, and that's so what happened with the English Trump Channel. Time. <laughs> we're talking right. Trump and Putin, and, and that's what makes the story especially interesting today. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Hopefully we can finish it while both of them are still in office. Um, but, but it's just a, it's such strange times we live in it's kind of like uh, with those two running the US and Russia who knows what might happen so maybe it's actually a good opportunity for George and his dream That you know it's a, kind of like just getting it it has to be like the right place at the right time and, and right. their real goal that we see them pursuing in the film is that they want to get this Bering Strait Tunnel they call it the Intercontinental Railway they want to get it on the agenda of the next U.S.-Russia summit. Which is when? Uh, there's no date for it yet. It was supposed to, it was no supposed to happen it's months ago. But now, you know, with the, the Mueller report and all the, yeah. you know, the collusion. collusion and all that kind of stuff. Now we want them to collude. Well, this would be like a, a positive kind of collusion, possibly. It's just kind of but strange for us to think that, like, yeah, it would be, it'd be, you know, probably the kind of project that Trump would actually do. But it, when you started filming, if it's this, called it the Trump Tunnel. If they call it the Trump Tunnel. In a weird way, it could attract some sort of, you know. But I mean, there's so much controversy around that, you know, collaboration between those two. And I think it makes you ask that too. It's like, you know, is it, you know, how we so quickly shift our thinking and now, oh, we're not going to work with the Russians anymore because, you know. But maybe it's just all in your head. And in reality, the people, the will of the people on both sides, you know, whether it's. The Russian going to Russia, Moscow, seeing all the the people, how how distant they actually also are from their governments, and and that you know, people people know what's what's you know what how it could be a better place, and, and I you think get, the world, yeah. What they, generally, what the if, you, in generally the film, if you get Americans you get, and Russians together, they get along they very get along well. Great, of course. Yeah, <laughs> all my Russians. We are really similar. <laughs> but it's, do you have it's Russian a, friends? Uh. Not yet. Not yet. Yeah. Well, you know, yes, I have friends. I do. I mean, I have friends who are. I, I grew up in New York, and I live in Detroit. All so right. I have. Friends, You're bound to. I have friends who are, you know, everything, part everything. Uh, so yes, I I do, and I certainly have known Russian people, and they were perfectly lovely. We had a we shot in in Moscow and in Yakutsk in in okay. Siberia, which is currently the end of the rail line in Russia 
and that's where they're extending it towards the Bering Strait, uh, which was fascinating. We actually got to see where the train tracks literally end, and they're um, well, and they so have their, their plans. So the the Russians they want to do this. The Russians do. They've okay. already done a lot of work to make it happen, and the Americans are they're basically saying we're waiting for the Americans to reach out their hands mm -hmm. towards yeah, us. Then they would have to build a wall around Alaska, and that would be. <laughs> But the funny thing That's is... That's really what's holding it up. Not too many people actually but know... We're not interested in building tunnels. <laughs> we don't want to connect. We want to separate or... Right, right. You know I mean, this kind of nonsense. But. Yeah. But, yeah. but I think a lot of people don't realize that Alaska used to belong to Russia. Yeah. And that the United States purchased Russia for... Or, or, or Alaska for, I forget this, $8 million back then or something. It, it was very little in 1867. And then it was just a territory Which for a long time. Which is not that long ago, really. I mean, no, it was not so. human history. Even it's weird to think that in 1950s, what, 9? 59, Alaska became, became the 49th state. Eight months before Hawaii became the 50th. It was some sort of a territory. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. When watching the old yeah. films, there are some, you know, old footage sneaking its way into the film that, like, yeah, what you say, it's strange to think it's not that long ago. But also, you know, it's a part of the world. I, I also, as an American, forget, you know. It's like we're down the lower 48. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But I think up there in that corner of the world, when you look at it also on a map and, like, the dimensions and everything, it's mm -hmm. it's an abstract thought. But, you know, people people, people know about Alaska. I mean, Alaska's always sort of, I'm never, you know, for me, Alaska is a, is a, you know, this last frontier. It's called the, the last frontier yeah. on the license plate. But And I admit, I've never been there. All I know of Alaska, I I got from northern exposure. Yeah. But these I are these Americans. These are these <laughs> Americans, you know, out there mm -hmm. on the front. I've also never been to Hawaii or Puerto Rico. What was Puerto Rico, America? It's a, yeah, it's a territory. Yeah. Okay, good. It's <laughs> yeah. a territory. Anyways, but they play baseball down there. I know. Yeah. Did you notice? I mean, I guess it was 1868, but would you say that even in Alaska now that there is a Russian... 58. 1867. No, wait, wait. You're talking about when they were... When, when it was they sold. Purchased. The oh, purchase okay. Was I was thinking about when it became a state. No, 1867. Okay. There are a lot of Russians in Alaska. Alaska. So there are actually Russian. Russian villages and there are Russian Orthodox churches. And, was, is there still yeah. like a Russian influence Yeah, and in actually Alaska? Russians have moved since the end of the Cold War. Quite a few Russians have moved to Alaska. Interesting. Back to their Siberians, ancestral homeland. Siberians, Perfect. they're more... You know, yeah, and the people Asian who live at the Bering Strait are actually relative. They, they're related on both sides of the strait. Like, they're... they're tribal. Tribal relations. Ancestry. They used to, they used to go back in their... water. They used to go back and forth in their walrus uh, skin boats that they would make. And then the Soviet Union closed the border. And uh, that was, like, in the 1950s. And then it, they literally cut off families. In the middle of the Bering Strait, there are two islands, Little Diomede and Big Diomede. And they're two miles apart, and the international dateline goes in between. So we filmed on Little Diomede, the American island. There are like about 150 native people who live there. And you could see Russia, literally like Sarah Palin <laughs> joke, yes. jokes. And you can, we could see over the Russian island, which has only, it's like a military outpost. The Russians, uh, the Soviets back then, relocated the natives who lived on that island to the mainland, and then made it a Soviet, like an outpost, because that was their border, and that so was that is. was the ice. It was like the the ice curtain they called it. Right, so there's right. the Iron Curtain in Europe, right. and the ice curtain was in the Arctic in the there, Arctic region, the Bering yeah. Strait. Wow. So that cut, that separated families, and since 
the end of the Cold War, there have been some reunions that have taken place. Because they, they speak the same language. Yeah. The older generations can still speak the native, the Inupiaq language. And so there's, um, they can still communicate. But during World War II, they were allies uh, and flew, you know, over that same, that same uh, stretch of land and you know, the provided, program. provided airplanes and military supplies and everything. It's, and it's, so, it's the natural route to fly right. that way. But, you know, I think just pushing it with the, uh, or from what I've come to learn is that, you know, part of this environmental uh, advantages of, doing a train uh, versus all this flying, it reduces the carbon footprint and mm -hmm. so on and so forth. So, I mean, there there are some, you know, I would say big environmental improvements to do that. Although I think the flip side of it is that um, they will go out and find those untapped resources definitely throughout Siberia, and that mm -hmm. kind of opens another Pandora's box, mm -hmm. you know. Same with uh, Alaska. Do they, do they really want to connect? That's some, one of the questions that we kind of raise in the film, you know. Maybe it's part of the will of the people that they that you know there has to be this place on Earth that's mm -hmm. sort of untouched and still, you know, not connected somehow. So that's also and does and does climate change have any effect on this? Probably it's starting to. I mean, on, uh, the, the fact that it's just a tunnel, it would affect the permafrost uh, from the Siberian side of that trail train, I guess, because that would and in Alaska and in Alaska, yeah. But I think the tunnel itself would just be built under the. The dirt, it's not going to, you know, it's not a tunnel that's sitting on top of the water. I mean, the tunnel, right, would, right. but maybe the entrance to the tunnel, if it floods, I don't know. These are all But the, the climate change unknowns. is definitely affecting the lives of the people who live there. We saw that last summer when we were there, especially on that island of Little Diomede. Mostly the older, older generation still did a lot of hunting, but the hunting is getting worse because the sea ice is melting right. sooner and it's thinner. It's harder. It's more dangerous to go out on the ice to hunt the seals and walrus. Um, so they're they're capturing less. They're re becoming more reliant on flying in processed food per helicopter. Once a week, a mail helicopter comes. So they're like they're losing these traditions, these yeah. hunting traditions, because climate change. That the animals are moving to different climates mm -hmm. as as the water is warming. There's a lot of uh, yeah, yeah not, not not so subtle changes because this has all happened in the time that when I first started researching this film in 2010. Mm -hmm until the time I shot it, like the, I, t I called, made phone calls to the school on Little Diomede Island, I think in 2013 or so, I had notes, and they talked about the ice runway. They would make a runway on the ice so that airplanes could land there. You could bring in a lot more per, by airplane than you can by helicopter, and they haven't had an ice runway in the last five years because the ice hasn't been thick enough. So, th so that change has happened just since I've been working on this film. It's also young people not really that interested in, in, you know, carrying on that, you know, the hard work of hunting and fishing and skinning and so on and so forth, where you can just go to a, you know, to a little convenience store and buy some crappy can of food or whatever, you know what I mean? It's, it's not, there's always that, that idea that, I mean, stuff's so expensive there, it's crazy already, but that's just their way of, their way of, their new way of life for the young people. They don't know, you know, yeah, it's yeah. just easier. Yeah. So, the film is shot. Yeah. The film is shot, and you are now in post-production. Right. We're editing. We've done an assembly edit. We've, we've created different versions of the, the film to show other people. Some parts are more finished than others. Uh, we have a trailer. We have a new introduction. We have... But it's, you know, it's quite a lot of footage over the years, and, and 
you know, reshaping the story. So I think the film will be, you know, feature length. It'll be up upwards of 80 minutes probably. Uh, but there's no designated length. But now we have, you know, it's, it's well over that as, as rough cuts usually are. Yeah, I think, I don't know, it'll be out sometime in 2020, I think. And so when, when you say it'll be out, will it be online, in theaters? Oh, it'll, it'll go the... It'll go to start at film festivals, and okay. then we have, there's a German TV station involved, so it will definitely be on TV in Germany. Um, Finland, uh, Finnish TV is involved, so they'll broadcast it. Uh, we don't have a U.S. partner yet, but I'm sure there will be someone who will come on board. In Alaska. <laughs> yeah. We have a German distributor, so it'll be in movie theaters in Germany. Oh, nice. Uh, I'm sure it'll be out there online, that kind of, I think, go. Matt should tell, talk about his second beer film because this has a real oh, this is a that real American German now. story. Okay. The beer well, Jesus from America. Yeah, the beer Jesus from America. It's not you know I don't only make films about beer, but it's <laughs> it's your specialty. <laughs> it's a good way to uh, it's a good way to get it's to talking to people. I, it is. It's growing. It wasn't it wasn't so when I started Beerland in, in two thousand and ten. It was sort of catching on uh, in Germany. This idea also that craft beer like it is in the states just didn't exist and I think that um, even though they have a lot of they have an amazing brew culture all throughout here but uh, in, in, in little towns and stuff but that style of brewing you know the IPAs the you know these these very American creations with you know blueberry beer or what you name it you know all that kind of stuff that was odd for the Germans I think uh, when I heard the story that that the co-founder and CEO of Stone Brewing in California wanted to be the first American brewer to own, build, and operate a craft brewery in Europe, in Germany, just down the street here. I was like, well, I, I've got to check that out because yeah. how's that supposed to work? You know. <laughs> um, at the same time, it was a the story of the beer Jesus that the the local tabloids called him the beer Jesus from America. I've kind of took over this German title, which was. I wouldn't say kind of dissing him in a way, but more like, you know, how he's playing, because he actually did do this performance art thing where he'd get up on beer barrels or in the bars and do this kind of funny anecdote against, you know, big corporate, big industry beer, you know, industry big beer, that just basically cheapening uh, beer all, all around, especially in, in the States here as well, this idea of, you know, why can't, you know, when do we accept cheap for good? And why can't we, you know, why can't beer be different? And I think just overcoming the stigma of, you know, beer has to be a certain way. In Germany, there's laws, purity law, Reinheitsgebot, you can only beer, brew beer with this, you know, this certain ingredients. And then, and then, you know, now he's challenging that. So I think my story steps in in this environment where, you know, what is this guy? What's he, what's he planning to do? And he builds this brewery, and I won't give away the ending, but it's coming out now. It's uh, showing you over the four years of him building his dream brewery mm -hmm. and, and how it worked out. And that will be going online uh, on the 15th of August, actually. on oh, next week. Yeah, which is going to be pretty cool uh, to be able to, people can pre-order it and buy it on, on Vimeo. And then on Amazon, Amazon Prime. But we played in, still playing in some little um, theaters around Germany and some events and craft beer events. It just played last week, had its Austrian premiere, and the people yes. liked it. They thought it was funny. It's an interesting story of, of you know, an Amer what's an American brewer doing in, in, in the Germany. land of beer. In the land of beer. 
So, you know, he did get kind of crucified, but again, no spoilers, let's put that way. The beer Jesus. Wonderful. Well, I want to thank both of you for, for talking to me in your studio here in Potsdam, Germany. Well, thank you. Thanks for, for having us. Popping, popping in. <laughs> from, from across the pond. Yeah, yeah. Just came over especially just to talk yeah, to us. Yeah, that's, yeah. that's a real honor. <laughs> Hope it was worth it. Definitely, definitely. And do you want to just put out any um, websites? Or yeah, for me, again, you can go to beerjesus.com. You can also check out my sweetwoodfilms.com, which is what I'm, the other films I've been making. And at mattsweetwood.com, obviously, uh, I'll, I'll be there for as long as I can <laughs> afford the website. Let's put it that way. Yeah, and I'm rickminnick.com. It's M-I-N-N-I-C-H. Um, that's my main website. And Forgetting um, Dad, uh, you can find on Amazon Prime and various other online outlets. And Homemade Hillbilly Jam is also on Amazon and you know the, the usual suspects. Oh, uh, yeah, I guess that the straight guys, um, straight yeah, it'll be out hopefully, hopefully next year. Yeah, it's out through the, you can find it through my website, yeah. rickmink.com. If you're interested, yeah, <laughs> get <laughs> out. <laughs> okay. It goes Thank to a good cause. <laughs> Thank you. All right, Thank you. take care. Thank you for listening to The Real Woman. If you'd like to learn more about Rick Minnick and his movies, you can go to rickfilms.de, Blu-ray, DVDs and downloads are available in the shop on his website. And if you'd like to learn more about Matt Sweetwood's film, The Beer Jesus from America, it is available on Vimeo On Demand at beerjesusfilm.com slash buythebeerjesus. That's slash B-U-Y the beer Jesus. A special edition DVD of this film will be available on Amazon in time for Christmas. Please join me next week when I'm back in Detroit speaking with Satori Circus about his over 30-year career as a performance artist and his new starring role as the center of a documentary, Being Satori Circus.